As a church, we've been making our way through the Gospel of John, and this morning we find ourselves in chapter 20. We'll be reading verses 1 through 18. You can turn there with me either in your Bibles or in the worship guide as it's printed for you. And as you turn there, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away... Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Easter is a bit of a confusing holiday. At least if you think about some of the details, do you really understand everything that happens culturally around Easter? If you are not persuaded that it is a confusing holiday, consider the dating of Easter, right? Have you ever thought, why does Easter always change? And how we decide, how do we decide what Easter, what Sunday Easter falls on? Well, it's decided because it's the first Sunday after the first full moon that occurs on or after March 21st. Who in the world decided that? Who's watching, making sure when the full moon is going to happen? And what does that have to do with the story? Or bunnies. How do bunnies become part of the Easter story? No one has any idea. Except that resurrection has something to do with life, and bunnies have something to do with life and procreation, and I don't really think that's what Jesus intended in resurrection life, but that association has somehow been made about spring, and of course, bunnies are a big part of Easter. Or eggs. Why are eggs part of Easter? You have no idea. uh, Eggs were given up during Lent. A season when you give up something, uh, particularly in Eastern Orthodoxy. Eggs were a popular thing to get up, so when Easter happened, of course, you haven't had eggs for 40 days, what do you want to do on Easter? 
you eat a lot of eggs. And that's where the whole Fabergé, right, the famous Russian decorated egg, that whole tradition gets wrapped up as well. Of course, even though Easter is confusing and there are all kinds of cultural things attached to it, at the heart, most people would agree, is this notion of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One uh, person was writing online trying to explain Easter, just it wasn't particularly a Christian person, but was trying to explain Easter and the resurrection to people, and, and this is how he phrased it. He said, yeah, speaking of resurrection, this is the key bit. The central sequence of events in the story of Jesus is his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. You'll recall the first part from the medallions of various rappers. It kind of implies the second part, what with it being an incredibly violent and harmful thing to do to a person. The third part you've heard about here and there, going on about it. It says, so, after talking about resurrection, it says, so, he was a zombie, is what you're telling me. Not so. The concept of resurrection is that the dead person has returned all the way to full life. Jesus was real deal dead and returns to real deal life. Interesting perspective from outside the church on the event of resurrection, which actually has some applicability. I was talking to one child uh, this week who was thinking through resurrection, thinking about people coming back uh, from death to life, and said that would be really scary. Like, you would have to run. And I hope the people in the story had extra locks on their door. And it finally dawned on me that what the child was envisioning was a zombie apocalypse. Like, that was resurrection, coming back partway from the dead. And that isn't really what the Bible story about. It's coming all the way back from the dead to actual life. Resurrection is not only at the heart of Easter, it's at the heart of the Christian story. Christianity stands with resurrection, it falls if resurrection is untrue. As the Apostle Paul says, if the resurrection is not true, then Christians above all are to be pitied because they bought into a story that ultimately has no real significance, no real meaning, no real power. And so we have to do significant business with the resurrection. We have to understand it in ways that the gospel writers are putting forth the resurrection story for us to understand, although I think we typically don't do that. The conversation with some of you this week, uh, we were talking about how resurrection is often simply understood as a proof. Just as I said, Christianity stands or falls with the resurrection. So if the resurrection isn't true, Christianity isn't true. So we think of resurrection as, oh, if resurrection is true, that is the mathematical proof by which my faith is established. And if Jesus is raised from the dead and ascended to the Father, then, then what is promised to me in the future is guaranteed. And I simply can presume on that fact. But interestingly, Scripture, particularly John, doesn't present the story of the resurrection simply as some proof to guarantee you something to give you confidence in the future. It is certainly that, but it's so much more. Resurrection is not just proof, it is life-giving story, not life simply in the future but life even here and now. How do we see that in the midst of our story? Well, it's largely revealed as Mary comes to experience uh, and engage the resurrection. What we see in Mary as we consider her character particularly this morning is, at least at the beginning, is that resurrection is actually a story that's very hard to believe. Right? It's, it's difficult to swallow. At least, uh, 
It certainly was for Mary, and she was a follower of Jesus, intimately tied to Him, and yet she cannot conceptualize at the beginning that Jesus has really been raised from the dead. And as we begin to consider Mary's story, I want to challenge you with the notion that all of our life is informed by story. Mary's is going to be informed by a story that she believes and is challenged, but we're constantly telling ourselves stories. Different stories that inform our life, that grant us identity, they grant us meaning and purpose. A good recent example of this is the story of Takako Konishi, who was a Japanese woman who not that long ago showed up in Bismarck, North Dakota, with a roughly sketched treasure map of, of farm roads and, and fences. Didn't have many details, and eventually, not speaking much English, of course, the authorities were notified this, this Japanese young woman, very attractive, is running around town and seems to not quite be right, and you need to go deal with her. So the authorities came in and started to converse with her, tried to figure out what was happening in the life of Takako and why she had shown up of all places in North Dakota, North Dakota. And she was looking, uh, as the conversation went on, they realized that she uh, kept referencing Fargo. And as the story unfolded, she was looking for Fargo, and she had with her a uh, much-watched copy of, VHS copy of the movie Fargo. Now, whether you've seen it or not, uh, Fargo is the story, it's a movie by the Coen brothers, and it's a story of a, well, part of the story is that a suitcase filled with money gets buried in the snow by a fence line in Fargo, North Dakota. The movie also opens with a screenshot that says, uh, this is a true story. Now, Fargo is in no way a true story, but Takako believed that it was as she watched the movie and tried to get all the clues that she could from the movie, perceiving that the suitcase of money was still buried somewhere outside Fargo. Uh, she showed up in town, and a few weeks later, uh, a hunter found her frozen to death out by Fargo, North Dakota, which is ironic because the movie was not even filmed there. It was filmed farther north because there wasn't enough snow in Fargo. But here's a woman who was exposed to a movie that's fictional, and was believed that the fictional movie was true, and then that story informed her life to go in not a very good direction. But what's interesting as well on top of that is that someone hearing this story was so amazed uh, that they decided to make a documentary about it, and so went and interviewed all the people in Bismarck who engaged Takako while she was there. And a documentary was produced, and then someone saw the documentary, and that being released right now, is another movie which is fictional, which is based on Takako's life. Right? So, you've got a fictional movie that informed a real story, that informed a documentary, that informed a fictional movie that's based on a real story, but isn't actually historically accurate. It's historically informed fiction. Right? Story informing life, informing story in an endless cycle, and that is how it works for us as well. Maybe not as dramatically as for Takako, but we're constantly wrapped up in the stories that, that inform our lives and push us in different directions. And Mary is believing a particular story, but actually, to begin with, it's not the right story. She doesn't dare believe the real story that's unfolding. She arrives at the tomb early, and if you look at verse 2, what does she say? Realizing that the tomb has been disturbed, 
She reports to some of the disciples, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Mary presumes upon seeing the tomb disturbed that Jesus' body has been stolen. Not that there any resurrection has occurred. He is still dead, but his body has been uh, taken away, placed somewhere else, and now she's very upset that this is the story that is unfolding that about what is happening. Now, this is somewhat odd because Jesus, on numerous occasions, has given not-so-subtle indications that what is going to happen or what was going to happen down the road was that he was going to die and then come back. He's going to go away for a little while. He's going to come back. He repeatedly gives indications to the disciples. Chapter 16, verses 9 through 20 is just one example in which he says, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will see not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Yeah. Mary is hurt and mourning and does not heed these anticipations of Jesus' resurrection. You might say, well, the anticipations are somewhat clouded. She may not have put everything together. But the author, John, is going out of his way to polarize Mary with the disciple that Jesus loves. Because the disciple that Jesus loves, as soon as he sees the empty tomb, what does he conclude? He says he believes. And he goes on, having assumed that Jesus is risen from the dead, where Mary can't actually do that. Mary is mourning the situation. She's filled with pain. And she is choosing a story that is ultimately more agreeable with her. Right? If, you, if you place yourself in Mary's shoes for a moment, you're, you know, Mary is coming to the tomb early in the morning. They, they didn't necessarily take care of everything that was involved in the burial because the, the Sabbath was, was impending and, and the, uh, the time was short. And so she's come back. To, to handle things, presuming that Jesus is dead, he sees the empty tomb. And we might assume that for Mary it is too much to hope. In the midst of her anguish and pain at, at Jesus being crucified and buried, that now she can't possibly raise expectation to consider that Jesus might be raised from the dead. Because to hope to that extent means that she would make herself vulnerable again. Vulnerable to the gross disappointment that, oh, what if I dared to hope such a thing and only found out that his body had been moved? I would be crushed and despairing again all over again. And so she, she opts for a story with which she identifies. And frankly, you know what Mary's doing, and I know what Mary's doing. Right? We experience situations in our life in which the pain and hurt are so significant that rather than necessarily enter into that, we, we massage the story a little bit so that we need not necessarily engage with the real pain and the hurt and make ourselves vulnerable to that extent. You know, oh, my marriage isn't that bad off. If I just pretend that it's really not that serious a situation, then I don't have to enter into that. Or, you know, my child, well, yeah, he's making or she's making some bad decisions. But, uh, you know, ultimately, this will all work out. Time and time again, we tell ourselves stories that would prevent us from actually being vulnerable to the massive amount of pain and hurt that exists around us. 
There's a, there's a fascinating book, which I think is just a great read. I think you'd be crazy not to read it. And people usually either love it or hate it. It was a Hugo Award winner back in the early 90s. It's called The Giver by Lois Lowry. And apparently just this year they made a movie of it. But I've heard, I haven't seen the movie, but I've heard the movie deviates pretty significantly from the book. The book, The Giver, tells a story of kind of a futuristic society, a little bit down the road from us, that has committed itself to removing as much pain and suffering from it as possible. Like, How do we create an existence that has as little pain and suffering for our people that can possibly be? And so over time, they've made various decisions to create the society. They've gone to sameness. Everyone wears the same thing. And they have uh, gone to testing so that everyone is assigned a particular role. You don't have to go through the angst of, what am I going to do with my life? It's assigned to you. Nor do you have to compete over it because everyone plays their role in society. And you can't complain too much or, or ask hard questions because that creates tension in society. And over time, they've even taken away uh, things like the ability to see colors or to see music. And the image that you get is that over time, that in order to create a culture that's divorced from pain and suffering, you ultimately have to also take out a measure of pleasure and of joy. Because, Lowry's arguing, the two are connected intimately. And so one person in the society is entrusted with withholding memory of culture, right? You can't really be divorced from pain if you, if you remember all the hurt that's gone on in the world. You can't say, oh, I love life and it's a beautiful place if you have knowledge of World War II. And so culture at large gives up cultural memory and it's entrusted to one individual who bears that burden and it's handed down once every lifetime to another person. And it's the story of this young boy who's been chosen to be the next receiver of that cultural memory. And as he receives it, he, he receives both pain, but he receives pleasure. He receives hurt, but he receives joy. And he has to go through the process of deciding that, oh, we've ultimately hurt ourselves by divorcing ourselves from pain and suffering. We've given up too much joy and pleasure. As he discovers what the color red is, as he begins to hear music. And so he argues that, that all of this has to be given back. The story of the giver is it's an analogy, it's a metaphor for our life, our culture, in which we are committed to lives in which we divorce ourselves in all kinds of ways from the pain and suffering around us, from the pain and suffering in which we exist. But as we do that, like Mary, we prevent ourselves We may have the perception of making ourselves less vulnerable, but we're actually preventing ourselves from the deepest notions of joy, from the deepest notions of hope that exist. This is where Jesus meets Mary in the midst of her pain. And it's a picture of us, of Him being willing to meet us in that place as well. So Mary is actually moving from not being in a place to believe the resurrection story at all, to be challenged to believe it, but it's a process. There's a gentle rebuke, both from the angels and from Jesus. Woman, why are you weeping? If you really believed what Jesus had laid down, tears wouldn't be streaming your face. Unless they were tears of joy, you would be filled with exuberance. And even when Mary meets the risen Jesus... 
She doesn't recognize him, but thinks, oh, surely still he's hidden away somewhere. And she says, tell me where you have laid him, and I will go and I will take him away. And it's in the midst of this her, this desperation, simply to find the body of Jesus. And you have to realize at one level that the story still to this point is about Mary. Mary, caring for a dead body doesn't do anything for the dead body. Right? What Mary is doing, what she's engaging is for her. And to the degree that her story is simply about her as an individual and not about God, it is in that sense immoral. But it's in that place, in the midst of following the wrong story and engaging in selfishness and not believing or hoping, that Jesus meets her and names her. He says, Mary. And in the midst of uttering her name, the scales fall off, so to speak. She's given sight. She understands who this person Jesus is. Pretty remarkable. I've been thinking all week, one of the fascinating things about the ends of the Gospels is there are three occasions in which Jesus shows up post-resurrection and He's not recognized. You've got the road to Emmaus. The disciples don't recognize Him until He's broken bread with them. You've got the coming later in the Gospel of John. The shore of the Sea of Tiberias where they don't recognize him until a miracle is performed in this, where they don't recognize Jesus until a, uh, um, until he utters Mary's name. What's, what's going on? You know, what, what's being communicated by this notion that Jesus is unrecognizable until something transpires? Well, each really probably must be dealt with in turn, but for Mary, you know, you might liken it to the way in which a, a na- your name might be uttered by a loving friend or particularly by a spouse. There are many ways that my wife Jennifer can utter the name Ryan. Right? There is uh, a, a dismay or disbelief that I've not done something that I should have done a long time ago and time is pressing, and she will say, Ryan. Or there is the feeling, the sentiment that somehow all of our children's problems and dysfunctions are the result particularly of my DNA. <laughs> and I will come home and she's exasperated. She said, Ryan, take these kids. They're yours. I'm leaving. Right? But there's also the moment when a spouse, Jennifer, can, she can recognize me hurting or in pain or or just she sees me believing the wrong story and can say, you know, very sweetly, but in a way that, that kind of breaks through the cobwebs, rhyme. And in that, there's a waking up. And I think, you know, as an echo, that's what's happening here, that Jesus, in love and tenderness and mercy to Mary, utters her name in such a way that she realizes, he, he calls her in to believe the story that she's been afraid to be- believe up until this point. But at that point where she can both believe it and know that it's true because she recognizes Him, she experiences great joy and relief, exuberance in meeting the risen Christ. She believes a new story. And this new story is not simply being named and simply happiness, but this new story informs all of Mary's life. In the uttering of the name, she is loved and known. And if you look at verse 17, 
Jesus says, you know, right after you have this intimate moment of the uttering of the name, Mary is obviously overwhelmed with joy, to which Jesus says, do not cling to me, which seems a bit harsh. But Jesus goes on to say, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. He says, listen, um, I love you, and the story is ending in a good way. But if you were simply to cling to me now, and cling to this moment, then you would fail to understand the larger story at hand, which is I will ascend to the Father and the Spirit will be distributed and you will have new life and new purpose. And so in this, Mary has to realize that even Jesus is participating in a bigger story. And she's called then to participate in a larger story, which Jesus commands her, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary is given the role of being the first person to give eyewitness testimony to the risen Christ. She's given mission by virtue of believing in the story. Now, you have to realize how astonishing that is. A, Mary is a woman of ill repute. Number two, she's a woman. In the ancient world, a woman's testimony wasn't even valid in court because they weren't considered to be reliable witnesses. Now, Jesus, upon resurrection and trust, the very first reportage of his being raised from the dead, the very word that will go to the apostles, to Mary. Utterly new life, an utterly new story, and one that I am always amazed at. One of the reasons that I believe this story is true is how ridiculous it would be if you were trying to frame a story, trying to write a story, out of a human pen, you would never write this. You would never trust the witness to Mary Magdalene of all characters. Nor would you have her show up and disbelieve that Jesus is raised from the dead. Of course she believes. And you'd have Jesus raised from the dead and laser beams would come out of his eyes and he would go and he would bludgeon all of the Romans and set up his empire, right? We would tell the story differently than as it's told in John 20. And this is encouragement, not only to our faith, but that there's a story that can be ultimately meaningful and purposeful because it's the story that is equipped and guaranteed by Jesus, and that's what actually makes this story unique. You see, without Jesus' resurrection, then the only story that we are left to is the one of our own making, the one that we decide upon, the one you say, well, how do you have identity or meaning or purpose? You can only answer that by saying, well, really, I have to grant myself those things. It's up to me. Now, you may be different, but when I examine my life and look at the periods when I've granted myself meaning and identity and purpose, it hasn't gone well. I've made bad choices. I've told the wrong story. But if that's not persuasive to you, then think about a minute the culture about the culture we live in. Right? The homes that are broken, the people that are dissatisfied, the people who are leveraged, to every extent in debt, who constantly tell stories to themselves that do not give life or purpose, but simply breed dissatisfaction. They're people who are deciding on their own story. Does it work well for people culturally? When I think about that, either myself or the culture in which I exist, the telling of our own stories, I think of a story I read about uh, Seraphim Todorov who is a Bulgarian and probably a Bulgarian that you've never heard of, but he was the last person to defeat Floyd Mayweather in the ring in 1996. 
He was a boxing prodigy. And in the 1996 Atlanta Olympic Games, uh, before the final round, he defeated uh, Floyd Mayweather, who went on after the 96 Olympic Games to be, to be undefeated since that time, and in many sports writers' opinions, to be the best boxer in the history of boxing. But this Bulgarian defeated him, and it was after the match, they were sitting in the locker rooms, and agents and scouts and business people started to talk, come to him and say, listen, we want to sign you for millions of dollars. We have a future. We have a house. We have a car. These are the bouts that we're going to set up for you. And uh, Todorov uh, caught up in the moment, thinking very highly of himself, uh, decided that he would do even better down the road. He said no. And they immediately went to talk to Floyd Mayweather. Todorov went on to fight in the gold medal round, and he lost to a tie boxer, uh, which pretty much the widespread opinion is that it was a fixed bout and the judging was, was ridiculous, that Todorov really won the bout. But Todorov goes back to Bulgaria. Today, 19 or so years later, right, he lives in kind of a bombed-out apartment across from a bombed-out coffee shop, the big banana paint, painted on the side. And he spends most of his time chain-smoking and drinking his favorite alcohol. Because nothing was able to materialize after he turned down that offer. He returned to Bulgaria. People looked past him. Mayweather's career skyrocketed. And Todorov's career didn't go anywhere. And here's a man who said, who was at the top of his game, who was one of the premier boxers in the world, says, I will chart my own story. And it ends in nothing but despair and disappointment. And I think that is so often the case when we entrust our story to ourselves. You know, I think that would have been the case if Mary was permitted to keep entrusting, uh, or to keep making her own story, to keep deciding that it's too vulnerable, it's too risky to believe that Jesus is really raised from the dead. But when Jesus does meet her, he calls her, says, Mary. He grants her identity. And he says, I'm partic- participating in a bigger story, and I'm calling to you as well to do the same And there's purpose in that, and there's mission in that she is then sent out to go and tell the other disciples. And the reason that that story is different from any other story is because it is guaranteed by the resurrected Christ. And in that, there is exuberance, and there is hope, and there is joy. And so for you this morning, are you weeping? For whatever reason, do you find yourself there? Why? Are you willing to be vulnerable enough to hear Jesus say your name in the same way that He says Mary's name? In the uttering of that name, He knows Mary. And He knows she doesn't believe. And He knows that she's hurt. But He reveals Himself to her and calls her to greater things. And Jesus would have the same for you if you are willing to meet Him in the midst of that pain and in the midst of that weeping. Let him turn your weeping into joy this morning as we come to the table. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we marvel at a story that is hardly believable. That you would be raised from the dead and in your resurrection from the dead, you would conquer sin and death. But in this, there is life and there is hope and we thank you for it. We pray that you would forgive us for the ways in which we are constantly 
committed to our own stories, and we think that we protect ourselves by those stories. Yet they don't protect, they only surrender life. And so we pray that you would meet us as we admit that we cannot write a story and we do not choose good stories for ourselves, and we pray that you would make your story our story. And in that, we celebrate that we are raised from the dead with you. We give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.